Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 6, The Path of Excess versus the Sublime Place. I'm Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve, and on today's show we talk about extra textuals, or all the details about a film that aren't part of the film itself, and whether they matter in considering how a movie works as art. We'll discuss Robert Rodriguez's new retro-exploitation movie Machete Kills, and the neo-grindhouse revival it's taking over theaters lately. We have a new game to try, looking at characters played by many actors over time, and then we'll close with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. So so stay tuned. public conflict between the actors and director of the new film Blue is the Warmest Color revived a discussion that's been churning in the Dissolve's office since the publication began. How much information should be paid to what film editor Scott Tobias calls extra textual information, which is to say any details about the film not actually contained in the film? Scott says the question of how a film was made, or what the filmmakers say they intended, or how many revisions the screenplay went through, or what have you, is all essentially irrelevant in approaching the final results. This is a fairly extreme perspective in an industry obsessed with all the tiny peripheral details of how films get made, and it isn't always a perspective that the Dissolve holds to as a group. Here to discuss whether and why extra textuals matter in considering art are... Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias. Nathan Raven. So, Scott, let's start off with you. What exactly is going on with Blue is the Warmest Color, and why do you think it's the worst thing ever? Well, what happened with Blue is the Warmest Color is that when it premiered in Con back in May, it was the absolute runaway favorite to win the, the Palme d'Or, which it eventually won. Our own uh, Mike D'Angelo was there, and he always likes to kind of collect this roundup of French critics and their ratings and that sort of thing. And the ra- and the collective rating for that film was as high as he'd ever seen. It w- and it, w- it got a rapturous re- reception, etc. Won the Palme d'Or. But then the fall rollout of the film has not been as successful. There's been a lot of stuff that's come out about the production, about how it was, you know, this this torturous five and a half month ordeal in which the director was a bully and, and these two actresses felt extremely uncomfortable. Uh, the author of the graphic novel in which it was based criticized heavily the film's depiction of lesbian sex especially but had a I think a pretty critical take of the film overall and all that has served to sour what was once a pretty triumphant movie and it's all this business about what happened on the set has I think colored people's perceptions of the movie itself in a way that is unfair to the movie. Now, I, I mean, I can see why you would resent that in a specific case like this where something that you think is really good is being spoiled by something that seems outside of the art. Right. But there's just there's so many aspects of extra textuals when it comes to film, not just in terms of writing film criticism, but in terms of just how we watch and how we talk about film with each other. You know, given particularly that we kind of live in an age where DVD extras just assume that we're all really, really interested in all the little details of how a film gets made, all of the stories leading up to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little surprised that you would want to shut that out as more of a blanket statement. Well, let me get, before I address that, I kind of want to get back a little bit to Blue is the Warmest Color because I feel like when I talk about the way it's polluted the movie, I'm thinking specifically of you know th- the three major scenes in the movie. There's one like 10 minute long, very graphic lesbian sex scene that apparently took like 10 days to shoot and was, was horrible <laughs> for both actresses. And then there are a couple of other scenes that are very long takes, very emotional. You know, I think, you know, we can get in the moment in all of these scenes when we see the film, uh, but now that all this information has come out, what we see is now, uh, you know, two women who are under duress. And that is, and that kind of colors our perception of the movie in a way that I think is, that 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 is to me a classic example of, of extra textual information, you know, affecting the way you see a movie in a way that I object to. Yeah, I think, I think that's actually a really good case for it being kind of a, a pollutant as you say, another example 
although probably unavoidable, um, was Zero Dark Thirty last year, which I saw and was amazed by. And then it became impossible to talk about Zero Dark Thirty without talking about the controversy. And, you know, we you know we could spend a whole segment on that. But it became sort of the qualities of the film and the qualities of it as a political statement were all mixed up together. And that, that's annoying. But, I mean, you've taken this position before when we brought up sort of, the, you know, any sort of outside information about a film. And, and I, I, I'm just not sure... Uh, the distinction I always make is this. I love extratextual information. I feel like it only informs my appreciation of a film, but I don't think it should cloud one's judgment of a film. For instance, we've been talking about Wong Kar Wai a lot because we're doing Chungking Express as a movie of the week coming up. And, you know, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, Chungking Express was supposed to end with all the main characters in an airport in Taipei. I have no idea why. Nothing in the film suggests why. Um, I love that the In the Moon for Love uh, Blu-ray has a whole nother act of the film. But to me, it's actually not part of the movie. It's sort of outside information that I find fascinating and informative and sort of sheds light on on what the film is, but none of that should factor into whether or not I think it's a good film. Yeah, well, actually, I completely agree with no, that. No, 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 Scott, you got to disagree with me. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to disagree with you, but I, I don't. I mean, and I think that you're supposed to be wrong. I don't want to completely have the blinders on and not, you know, use some information or, or some context that is available. So, in that sense, I, I think maybe you all perceive me as being far more extreme than I am in that in that more respect. orthodox. Um, uh, but uh, but it can be. I mean, it can be. It can still get you in fairly dicey territory because when you get into um, aspects of the production like that, and you get look at interviews and these sorts of things, you know, then then you start to hear, you know, what the director intended or something like that, and that is, of course, the fallacy of intent, and that that's definitely something I object to when you're talking about reviews. I mean, that's that's outside the field of play, in my opinion. It's hard to unlearn stuff too. I mean, and part of me wishes I didn't know that Steven Spielberg was off screen in a gorilla mask, getting the little kid to react the way he does. And when uh, he's encountering the aliens in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but I do know it. It's a neat fact. I just try to, you know, when I watch that movie, I try to shut that fact out as much as possible. Nathan, yeah. where do you stand? <laughs> I was going to say that I agree with Keith. I mean, I love extratextual information. I feel like so much of what's fascinating about the movies uh, is the stuff that you know goes on behind the scenes as well as in front of. At the same time, you don't want it polluted. To, to use uh, Keith's example, I love Zero Dark Thirty, and I kind of willfully did not read articles uh, about the filming. You know, I wanted. To to enjoy it and love it and appreciate it as a work of film as opposed to a work of journalism or you know sort of this political football that it became over the course of there but I also feel like it's it's impossible to you know completely uh, remove that from your I, I guess kind of a good example for me would be the beaver like that would be a very very difficult film to just see completely you know with no extra textual information whatsoever just kind of look at Mel Gibson's performance only within the context of the film and I kind of feel like it's just not human to be well, able to block out all of that stuff well and, that, and I think and I think in a way there are you know occasions like that with someone like Mel Gibson and, and we got this with Machete Kills as well, is that uh, the audience is so conscious right. of a person's reputation and personal history. That factors into the, to both of those movies. So that's a part of those movies. You know, that and, and becomes much, textual information. And very much, it, very much in play, yes. Right. Well, I mean, they can also enhance your appreciation of a movie or enhance your ability to trust a movie if you have like feelings going in for somebody involved, for the, the actor or the director. And that's something we, we saw pretty recently when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's movie 
Don John came out. A couple of people, I guess, in the comments accused Genevieve of uh, giving him too much benefit of the doubt because he's likable or accused kind of the critical community of giving him too much benefit of the doubt on that movie because he's likable. And I kind of go the other way with that. I feel like I don't necessarily, I, I do like his work. I, I like his body of work and I respect him a lot, like the choices that he's made as an actor. And it's not so much that him being in a movie pulls me into the theater, but I've seen him do so much well-chosen and well-thought-out work that I kind of respect his intellect. I've read interviews with him that make me think he's a very smart guy. So I might have given Don John a little more benefit of the doubt than it necessarily deserved because I'm predisposed to think he knew what he was doing and if there's something about the movie that I doubt that he more likely intended it and thought through it. The way he speaks about that movie in particular makes me think that he really did have specific intents and knew what he was doing. It's less, you know, I like that actor so I'm going to like that movie and more I think that filmmaker is smart so he probably had actual intent when he was creating that movie. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I am with you right up to the word intent because, you know, that is to me, that's a kind of an ironclad rule of the fallacy of intent. I, Can what you explain what, that to us? The fallacy of intent is this idea that, you know, the author has a certain intention and that in, intention is the perhaps the incorrect interpretation of the film and that's what, what we're sort of... Uh, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's relevant as an interpretation of the film. Like if someone were to say, I, I set out to do this, that should be taken into consideration as one way to look at the film. But the I think the fallacy intent is the idea is that we as viewers are there to discern the intent of the author right. and that is the what the film... That's the film's ultimate meaning. Whereas, no, I mean, once once the film is out there, it, it's, it's somebody else's film to interpret. I've really enjoyed the film Room 237 in part because it's such a great illustration of how once you put thing out in the world it's just not yours anymore yeah. it's for the world right. to interpret no matter how crazy some of those interpretations get yeah I mean I was thinking about that as well and one of the crazy sort of fun things about room 237 is even if Stanley Kubrick were uh, out of character to just flat out say what his movie was about people would be like well that's just one man's opinion yeah well and, and there's also kind of this it, it kind of blows apart this idea that an author is completely in control of everything they do. I mean, that, that's the true value of Room 237, to, to my mind, is that is, you know, is because, you know, we think of Stanley Kubrick as a director who is in complete control of every aspect of the production. And I think that is a, an assumption that all of the individual subjects of Room 237 make. But, but the fact is, is that he's no one is, has that much control when you put a, something out into the world. There are a lot of different ways that people can interpret it and not just the one way that, that you know, whatever the director happened to, you know, quote unquote intent. And film in particular, I mean, the fallacy of intent comes from literary theory when, when you know, applied to works of literature where you actually do have one author creating something. And, and well, the auteur theory wants to ascribe that kind of power to directors. And in some ways, it's a useful way of looking at it. And, and we think we think director-wise a lot. But there are so many factors that go into making a movie that are outside of anyone's control. Any, even a director is controlling, controlling the Stanley Kubrick. I mean, we do a lot of interviewing of uh, filmmakers and uh, particularly directors here. <laughs> Why do we do that if we don't know, don't want to know their intent? I'm very curious if uh, Stanley Kubrick was around today and we were interviewing him about Room 237 and his intent with The Shining. If he said five of these theories are complete bullshit, but this theory is correct, would you consider the film ruined? But would I you, faked would the moon be, landing. Would, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> would you be furious at him for revealing that? Would you try to discard that information when you watch the movie? I, that, I think Keith put it, uh, a little earlier, it would just it would be one one interpretation among uh, among many. His inter it, it would just be his interpretation. Yeah, I, did, I just don't. Yes, I, I just don't. I just don't think. I just don't think he's it. the. I don't think he's the guy with the with with this the the information and that we and that our watching a movie is about 
unlocking that information. I don't feel like that's. I don't. There's, there's not an answer. Way. There's not a you know to to the to the yeah. film's mystery. And to most filmmakers' credit, they're usually pretty cagey about what they intend. You know, uh, which is good. Uh, yeah, I mean to kind of bring this back to a film that I've been thinking a lot about uh, these last couple of months. Uh, I remember you know when uh, Harmony Crand was talking about Spring Breakers. He was kind of talking about how there were two movies that were kind of being made. There was a film that he was making, and then there was also kind of the idea of the film that was being constructed via social media. And a film like Spring Breakers is all about metatextual information. It's just throwing it and almost daring you not to know all of these things about all of these people going into the film. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, obviously there is a role that it plays, and you don't want it to play too much of a role, you don't want it to poison, you don't want it to corrupt, mm-hmm. but it's also just damn near impossible to pretend that it doesn't exist or that you can completely Yeah, I mean, the, the bad side of it is that is that you just go into things completely uninformed, which is, right, not, which right. is not a good approach. Well, here, all right, I, so I, I'm, I'm developing a theory that I didn't have going into this conversation that I suspect Scott isn't going to like, but I'm curious what you all <laughs> think about it. What I'm hearing a lot of is if, if extra textual information spoils your take on the film, spoils your interpretation, or makes it hard to enjoy the film, then it's bad. But if it enhances your interpretation or your enjoyment of the film, then it's good. And we resent extra textual information that takes a debate about a film into a place that we don't want, to get, want it to go, either because it fights with our interpretation or because it fights with our enjoyment. Busted. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's actually, I mean, in a way, that's, 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 I think you've summed it up pretty, pretty well. I mean, I mean, it, it is, I guess there's sort of good information and bad information. Am I, am I, am I wrong? I suppose. I mean, I, I think you have to filter, the, try, try to find a way to filter these things out. But, but uh, I tend to be sensitive about that, about that. Uh, you know, particularly when I read reviews about, about, you know, things that, you know, if, if somebody includes like a bit from an interview of a certain filmmaker in a review, it's like, I, I don't want to see that there. I feel like that's outside the playing field. Mm, I, I think that kind of stuff, I, I, think, I think taken as sort of a, uh, here is a bit of information that factors into to what the film is. I think it's totally legit to include that sort of thing. Um, but when, it, when it, going back to what we were talking about, when it's like, well, this is what the film's about because the guy said it so, then that's, that's not, it's not a good use of that kind of information. Or, or or you know, or I or I object to you know bullying directors or cretins or whatever. You know, like uh, what if you don't you know, if you don't like Roman Polanski personally, then then that has an impact on everything you review by Roman Polanski. That kind of stuff. It's it's not good. And I think it's I think this is a fa- is happening with Blue is the warmest color. I mean that the opinion on that movie has completely changed as a result of all of these revelations that have come out about it it's 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 been kind of it's been spoiled in a way that i think is is uh, unfair to the movie even if even if on a human level you know what the director did to achieve what he achieved is is maybe objectionable it's kind of the opposite of Fitzcarraldo in a way where you're uh, under you know seeing burning the dreams and knowing that what Werner Herzog went through to make that film it, it it can't help but enhance in some way what you, what the what you feel like the achievement of the film is, whereas something like the information about blue is a warmest color can't help but in some way take away from it. So maybe maybe we should just maybe maybe Scott, maybe the Scott we had in our mind is ultimately right that we should just ignore everything. <laughs> well, I'm just going to ignore pretty much everything he said in 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 favor of my personal interpretation of his intent in this argument. And with that, I think we can shut everything down. I think uh, what we're all agreeing here is that we don't like bullies. Uh, we don't <laughs> like being told what to think. And we don't like being told what the conversation is. And I think that's probably something everybody can agree with. So thanks, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for talking this out.
Robert Rodriguez's Machete series started life as a joke, as one of the fake trailers sandwiched in between the two feature-length movies in Grindhouse. While the gag with those trailers seemed to be, wouldn't it be ridiculous if this was a real movie? Rodriguez keeps taking the joke further. He made Machete as a full-length feature in 2010, and now it has a newly released sequel, Machete Kills. The new film repeatedly teases a third film, Machete Kills Again, in space, which Rodriguez has been promising for a couple of years now. The Machete series is just part of a recent trend for self-aware exploitation film semi-parodies that also doubles actual exploitation films. Here to discuss this grindhouse revival are Scott Tobias, Nathan Rathen, and Matt Singer. So guys, oh, first of all, do you, do you have any theories as to what's behind this sudden wave of new grindhouse movies? I mean, like, why, why all of a sudden are we seeing all of these movies that are kind of echoing this kind of dark, grimy part of our cinematic history? I think uh, for me, uh, if I can answer this, uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, is kind <laughs> yeah. of the the fountainhead from which is strong, both in terms of being the man behind, you know, the Grindhouse double feature that kind of kicked all of this off, and then also that being his aesthetic. And when he had his, uh, you know, distribution ring, uh, Rolling Thunder, like that's basically what they put out were these kind of Grindhouse movies that were utterly ridiculous, and you'd have a hard time calling them good, uh, but they were a whole lot of fun, uh, and they were very entertaining. Yeah, like and, Switchblade Sisters and. and uh, uh, Detroit, Mighty uh, Peking Man, was it Detroit, uh, Detroit 3000. Detroit 2000, yeah. Uh, yeah, these, these films were super fun and meant a whole lot to him. And then, yeah, I think he kind of brought that back uh, with the Grand House Double Feature and has kind of been, been, you know, sort of growing ever since then. We've seen not only this, but uh, Hobo with a Shotgun, which is another kind of weird uh, sort of spinoff of that whole series. Well, I think it feeds into this need that people have, you know, at a certain budget level for genre pictures. I mean, Matt, Matt Singer, you just saw this movie at Fantastic Fest. It wasn't probably wasn't alone <laughs> among movies of its kind. No, definitely not. Yeah, so so there, so I think that explains it too. Is that that there's a certain nostalgia there, to a certain uh, you know desire to recreate uh, that particular slice of, of disreputable movie making. And and Tar- I think Nathan's absolutely right that uh, Tarantino is is the driving force. And I think, I think in, in some cases, sort of, sorry, uh, it's sort of social media is a bit of a driver as well, kind of to talk about another film, you know, that might be uh, germane to our conversation, Snakes on a Plane, <laughs> was a movie that just sort of the internet sort of locked onto very early kind of in the, in the production process and just kind of made their own and kind of said, like, we dream about this movie, we willed this film into existence, you know, you're kind of making this movie for us. And I think that was a film that suffered from that, from suffered from having to, you know, fulfill these people's expectations, suffered from from having to be the craziest, most in-your-face, most outrageous B-movie ever. And just, just it, it groaned and it strained and it just wasn't the explosion of fun that everybody angrily demanded it to be. And I feel like we've been repeating <laughs> the Snakes on a Plane experience over and over and over again, including movies like Machete and Machete Kills, which are wonderfully fun in theory and absolutely painful to watch in actual execution. <laughs> I think uh, part of the appeal for some people also has to do specifically with the budgets. I think mm. that there's something to be said for really cheap movies. Right. I don't, I th- you know, a lot of people say, well, these are like so bad, they're good, and that's what makes them fun. And, and maybe that's part of it. But I think it's also, it's like they're so cheap, they're fun. And, and, and in a world where Hollywood movies have become these enormous, gargantuan productions, hundreds of millions of dollars, there's something kind of, um, charming in theory at least maybe right. not an execution about a movie that you know somebody made in in three weeks for five million bucks 
you know, uh, in the case of Robert Rodriguez, he has his own little studio sort of in the outskirts of Austin, Troublemaker Studios, where he shoots everything. If, you, if you've been there, and I was uh, fortunate enough to get a tour of that place a few years ago, if you've been there and seen what it looks like, you can kind of recognize it in every one of his movies. He just kind of shoots out of every angle, and the back of it looks like the, uh, the, the factories or whatever from Planet Terror, and it pops up again in Machete Kills. And there's, there's kind of a, like a wistful nostalgia for this era when, and these kind of schlocky B-movies were relegated to grindhouses and weren't, you know, the main thing that Hollywood makes all summer long. I mean, I think that, I think that might be the reason why at least some people kind of get a kick out of them. Well, it seems like part of it is kind of the homemade uh, aspect to it is really appealing, certainly with Rodriguez, which is another uh, reason why, God, I wish his movies were better, because like, it's awesome that he's making them by himself, you know, in this little self-contained unit. I just wish they were fun and enjoyable and things like that. Um, you know, this is maybe a little bit uh, a field, but I think it's part of the appeal of Sharknado as well, which is the idea of just this incredibly cheap cheesy silly movie that people just latched onto and i guess you know the sequel is going to be a theatrical release um and yeah i think people just they they, i think they they love the idea of these movies to such an extent that can sometimes you know cloud them to the fact that oftentimes they're bad or not in a way that's fun and enjoyable and subversive but just in a way that's just kind of dispiriting what can get frustrating for me uh particularly with these uh rodriguez movies is that uh is that they they kind is that they're supposed to be a throwback to the the movies of old, but the style uh, completely betrays yeah. that. Something like uh, you know, like uh, Machete Kills is sort of, you know, uh, it's got all this digital blood, mm-hmm. which is which looks terrible. It's got you know, I, th- I think it's a movie that that kind of promises to have kind of that kind of nasty sort of you know uh, TNA aspect to it, but it's weir- weirdly kind of like sexless in a way and kind yeah. of uh and uh and it just doesn't have the same flavor uh, you know and of course there's just a tremendous abuse of uh digital effects and it just i, I feel like it just doesn't have the the texture of those old, older films um uh, to give you a counter example though you know one film i really love is is the movie black dynamite Ugh, i was just about to bring that up yeah I mean, damn you and the dissolve hive mind i mean <laughs> black dynamite is a is a parody slash homage to black exploitation films but it's one mm-hmm. that gets that where most of the the fun comes from the fact that it gets the visual language of those movies absolutely right. Well, and it uses a lot of stock footage actually from the era, and it gets everything so perfect that you don't really know what stock footage from 1973 that they're appropriating and what is new. And the thing that I love about Black Dynamite, it's such a smart, knowledgeable movie. It gets everything. It knows exactly what it's talking about, and there's this love and appreciation for the art form that you see, you know, and. You know, Zucker Brothers or, or Mel Brooks movies, uh, you know, that you don't see in a movie like Machete Kills, where it's just kind of spewing, you know, these ideas in every direction. A lot of the ideas that it plays with are really lame and really secondhand. I mean, one of the big gags of Machete Kills is, you know, Sofia Viraga like shoots bullets out of like a bra machine gun, and I'm like, hey, that's just like Austin Powers. Uh, 17 years ago and that was also kind of this spoof of like hey let's make the craziest uh you know sort of wacky spy movie spoof ever so you're just dealing with this sort of exhausted ideas you know as opposed to bringing uh you know these things that you loved from your childhood to life you know in the in the black dynamite model i mean all of these movies kind of have that level of self-awareness the sort of walking a line between the necessary awareness that you're talking about 
of being very aware of the genre, the genre signifiers, and all of the things that make up one of these movies that they're imitating. But then they also often go off into this kind of very arch place where they know they're being trashy and they know they're appealing to the audience and there's a a really heavy wink-wink factor. Mm -hmm. So uh, my question with that is how much self-awareness is too much? How much meta is too much? Where do you draw the line between needing to know a lot about the genre to make it work and needing to kind of make a, a point of knowing a lot about the genre so you're in on the joke with the audience. It can be a tricky game because I, I think I think you, you, as a filmmaker working today, it's very hard not to know that past and acknowledge that past and, and try to grapple with it. But I think clever filmmakers can kind of find some solution to it. I mean, I really loved the Tarantino part of mm-hmm. Grindhouse, which uh, which is a, you know a throwback to movies like Vanishing Point, specifically Vanishing Point. But he plays little tricks. You know, he does he makes it his movie. There's lots of dialogue, but there's also some structural gamesmanship as well, and and kind of an interesting acknowledgement of the world of this of of this film, of the world of, of Vanishing Point and, and those the, the Challenger. What is it? The Dodge Challenger right. in that chase sequence, kind of literally breaking into the world in which we live now. You know, when the, when the chase the chasing suddenly spills out onto you know a freeway with with modern cars, with minivans, and this sort of thing, and I feel like that was the that's that's kind of a it's self conscious, but it's a smart self conscious, and it feels like a, a you know you're sort of reinventing and reinvigorate re- reinvigorating the form, which is something that Tarantino is particularly good at. Well, and it's interesting to note as well that you know Tarantino basically followed that up with two movies, Inglorious Bastards and. Um... Life's faster. Django Unchained. Yeah, very much kind of an in the grindhouse mold with that kind of Laura B movie feel, but nobody thinks of them in the same way as Machete or Machete Kills because there is so much going on. There's such an artistry to it. Whereas, you know, when you have a movie like that, they're literally just nothing but illusions. And when you have nothing but illusions, that becomes very, very empty. And it can still be fun. I mean, to to talk about like Hobo with a Shotgun is a movie that, you know, I, I thought like, well, I can appreciate what it's going for. I appreciate kind of the, the verisimilitude. And then I, I think I saw Death Race, not Death Race, um, Death Wish 3, uh, you know, like two <laughs> months later. And so many of, you know, its references are specifically to that film. And I would have gotten a lot more out of it having seen that film before. And it kind of speaks to, you know, something is a little wrong if you don't know going in these specific references, then you get a lot less out of it. Maybe it's uh, it's just my personal taste, uh, but I tend to find Black Dynamite, notwithstanding, which I do think is a is a fun little movie, that the homages to old exploitation movies are generally more fun than the parodies of old exploitation movies. And I think the movies that don't work, which include a lot of the Rodriguez ones, are more parodies than homage. And uh, a lot of the movies that I like tend to be a little more, I don't want to say serious, but they don't, it's, it's more like having fun with exploitation movies than making fun of exploitation movies, which is kind of the vibe I get from something like Machete Kills. It's like, tee hee, tee hee, look at how silly these old movies were. Whereas you sort of, you put that in contrast with some of those Tarantino movies you were mentioning. And it's more like, look at how great these movies were when we had, uh, you know, stuntmen who would do practical stunts that were really crazy like that scene you mentioned from death proof with uh zoe bell hanging off the front of that dodge uh you know the the rodriguez version of that scene would probably be done on a green screen with someone standing on a on a car that wasn't actually moving but tarantino actually filmed the whole thing with real stuntmen and stunt women and and it seems to be more a celebration of this sort of bygone era of 
wonderfully exploitative movies as opposed to this kind of like looking back with a slightly arched eyebrow at uh, at movies that are that were kind of silly, but we enjoy kind of winking at them almost from a, a place of superiority, maybe. And, and perhaps that's the difference. And not just from a place of superiority. What strikes me at the, as the difference between Death Proof and Planet Terror is that one of them is actually paced like the 70s movies it's imitating, and the other one is paced in a very modern style. I mean, Robert Rodriguez's movies tend to be fairly manic. Uh, Machete Kills, I, so much yeah. crazy plot is poured on. It's almost like he's just trying to keep the audience from thinking long enough to realize how ridiculous it all is. Uh, and to actually get to a like an intellectual plane where they, they aren't just sitting there with their mouths hanging up and going, look all the blood. So I'm a little curious how you guys relate to all of these, like the modern uh, Grand House movies that are all about speed and action and, and overwhelming the audience, usually overwhelming the audience with awesome. You know, you've got your your death race and your the crank movies and the machete movies and whatnot. Like, how how what do you think about those movies? I think that too much awesome is, in fact, too much. Uh, there gets a point where it just becomes exhausting and becomes dispiriting. And the idea is to take these, you know, sort of silly, ridiculous, pulpy B-movies uh, from the past and to make a better version, you know, to kind of go back... 32 years uh writers of the lost ark was basically steven spielberg and like the most talented crafts people in the world being like let's do a crazy b movie like the kinds we loved when we were kids but let's do like the best possible version and that was you know a great movie that was nominated for best picture that we're still talking about 32 years later whereas with machete kills you're kind of taking you know sort of this idea and making a dumber version of it a less informed a less uh faithful and reverent version so yeah i think there definitely uh, comes a point where it just becomes excessive and, and you know and, and these movies at least you know the, the path of excess does not lead you know to the sublime place it leads to you being dispirited uh, by four hours of machete or or hobo with a shotgun is that right, same situation yeah. because you get just constant extreme violence you know it, it to me it all it, and this is true of not just of any movie really it's in terms of style i think you really want a, a very precise detonation of effects you know mm-hmm. if if death proof had been all car chase i don't think it has the impact that it has I, I, w- without you know kind of setting up a lot of things before spending a little bit of time for these characters, kind of establishing Kurt Russell as 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 the force that he is, you know, gi- just giving you kind of a flavor, of, you know, that that sort of thing. I mean, these are these are things that require patience, and you know, something like Machete Kills is like all sensation all the time, and you just kind of shut down. It requires a lack of patience, right? Yeah, it requires it to just like want and it assumes uh, that sensation all, every several seconds. It assumes that that the audience is is going to be with it that way, otherwise right. they'd be bored, and I feel like that's not a great assumption. And it assumes that the audience is going to be jaded and cynical and needs a whole lot of sensation just to cut through all of that. And for me, at least, that was a pretty fatiguing attitude uh, to have to, to, to address. And some people just flat out have skill. You know, I, I think, uh, Taren, and Rodriguez, to me, has has very little skill. I, I, I do want to say one thing in defense of uh, Robert Rodriguez, which is that uh, we I, we haven't mentioned the very first film he ever made, mm. which is uh, El Mariachi, which is maybe the best grindhouse movie he ever made without necessarily uh, uh, fixing that tag to it because it was actually made sort of in the spirit of a legitimate Grindhouse movie and that it was made for, what, $7,000 or whatever outrageously cheap sum it was made for. And it was designed to be a no-frills no, th- you know, no frills, uh, exploitation movie. And 
it was done on the super cheap and done for, uh, you know, like the Latin action market because that was just the, you know, that was the only thing he could think to do as a way to break in. And I don't know, I think there's a, an authenticity to that film that I still enjoy that's missing from some of these later movies where you do watch something like Machete Kills and go, does this guy even really, like, has he ever even seen, like, the movies he's quote-unquote making fun of or, or making a parody of? You know, the, the Machete Kills has more to do with, like, Star Wars and Moonraker than it does with, you know, old exploitation movies in a lot of uh, the scenes. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like he's maybe gone a little off the reservation or whatever you want to say about it. He's, he's lost his way. But I feel like at some point he had, he had the, the authentic grindhouse spirit, but maybe he's, he's lost it somehow. Well, then let's wrap with this, since that all came out as, uh, as pretty negative, I guess, about this whole thing. Do you have uh, neo-grindhouse movies that you would unequivocally recommend besides Black Dynamite? Like, what are, your, what are your favorites? I can give a few. I mean, like, the one movie we haven't mentioned at all that I think is, is really, really good, and I, I, it does feel a lot more like homage than parody, it's definitely not a comedy, is The Devil's Rejects by Oh, Ron's yeah, comedy. yeah, that's a favorite. And, uh, you know, that's a sequel to a movie, House of a Thousand Corpses, that probably is more like a parody. I mean, it's, it's very bright and colorful and kind of over the top and, and a little bit campy, even though it's also really violent and bloody. This movie, though, is really not, you know, it's, it, it's not a joke. It's really dark and sinister. And it, it, it's, it, it's sour and, and miserable. And it does kind of have this real spirit of like a really nasty old exploitation movie this isn't a movie that's like having fun with the idea of it it's it's pretty grim yeah yeah it's the real stuff it takes like the villains of the first movie and basically turns them i wouldn't say into heroes but it it almost like recasts them as as victims or you know at least the protagonists that we follow and they're being uh, sort of chased by the cops and it just sort of forces us into this weird kind of emotional stakes with them where even though they're still the same despicable horrible uh, monsters suddenly we we kind of feel for them because they're being uh, chased by by these crazy awful cops I don't know it's it's a really interesting movie and I would say that's one that I would definitely point to as as uh, a pretty solid movie in this in in this kind of uh, movement. Uh, yeah, I would completely second that, and actually, and, and say, uh, put in a good word also for for his most recent film, uh, Lords of Salem, which is another throwback. With a lot of a lot of actresses who are who are a little above uh, middle aged who 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 are part of a certain era, you know. Yeah, you know, sort of uh, being sort of a coven of wishes in this. I can't even remember. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, with Ro- Rob Zombies is somebody like Tarantino who you f- just knows that era backwards and forwards. You can just feel it, you know, embedded in those movies and in all the details. And that I think that's what really counts. You know, that just that level of investment. On a uh, kind of continuing that thread uh, on a horror movie vein, uh, House of the Devil. I think is a, is a pretty oh, yeah, brilliant, yeah. brilliant mm-hmm. homage to a very specific era of, of horror movies that kind of gets everything right, all the details right. And in terms of just the cinema of excess, it being fun as opposed to soul-crushing, uh, I enjoyed the first Crank movie. Uh, that was a whole lot of fun. I also enjoyed Drive Angry 3D, which was very <laughs> divisive and some people just despise with every fiber of their being. But I felt like, yeah, it was one of those instances where, yeah, this was exactly what I wanted this movie to be. So there are definitely when done well. This can be a whole lot of fun. Fun, and when done poorly, it can be the enemy of fun. Well, that's a, a reasonably lengthy list of of marching orders. Mm-hmm. First, I'll go out and watch at the uh, lack of drive-in that we mm-hmm. sadly have locally. Uh, thanks a lot for the recommendations, guys, and thanks for talking it out. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks. 
Just in case you've ever wondered what character has appeared on screen most often, we have the answer right here, courtesy of the Guinness Book of World Records. It'll be an answer in our latest game, Common Denominator, as we challenge players to deduce what character we're talking about based on some of the people, familiar and less familiar, who've played them. This is a buzz-in game, so the Scott Tobias rule is in effect with points subtracted for wrong answers. Here to play the game are Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps, and Nathan Raven. So guys, if I were just to start listing actors, if I were to say, for instance, Peter Sellers, David Nibben, George Lazenby. <laughs> yes, Keith? James Bond. That would be James Bond. That's how the game is played. I'm just going to list off a bunch of actors or uh, actresses for you, generally in order from least known for the role to most known for the role. Mm -hmm. And the first person to jump in and get the answer correct gets a point. If you jump in and get it wrong, you lose a point. Pretty simple. So let's get started. We'll start with some of the easier ones. Richard Attenborough, David Huddleston, Michael Constantine. Yes. Uh, that would be Santa Claus. Amazing. Before I even got to Ed Asner and Tim Allen. All right. That's eight point for Nathan. Yay. Number two, Ted Neely, Jeffrey Hunter, Max. Nathan? Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is Although gonna... Jeffrey Hunter is either Jesus Christ or it's uh, Captain uh, Kirk. This is going to be Nathan's no, game. This I might turn out to be no, Nathan's no, game. No, no, sir. You played Captain Pike. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I apologize. Do we give him a point for knowing that, or do we take <laughs> 15 points away? All right, number three. Nicholas Rowe, Peter O'Toole, John Barrymore, Christopher Lee, Basil Rathbone. Sherlock Holmes. There you go. One for Keith. Number four. Wei Quang Zhang. Nobody jumped on that. Adam Sandler, Gerard Butler, Christopher Lee again, Richard Roxborough, Nathan? That would be the character of a Dracula. It would. Dracula, wow. according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the most portrayed character on film. Yeah. Which I is kind of surprising and amazing that, yeah. to me. All right, number five. Eliza Dushku, Anne Hathaway, Lee Merriweather. Oh, shit. I think I'm first. Yeah. Catwoman. Cat that would be Catwoman. Cat that was the only one who was, was, was the first close. <laughs> Eliza Dushku. She uh, voiced Catwoman in Batman Year oh, One. Oh, wow. That's what threw me off. All right. Number six. Terry Camilleri. Marlon Brando. Ian Holm. Rod Steiger. Nobody? All right, here's 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 the giveaway clue. Uh, Danny DeVito played an actor playing this character in Get Shorty. <laughs> Think of a bunch of really short actors with really big attitudes. Wow. Nobody. Okay, that one was Napoleon. Napoleon. Oh. Napoleon. I, I thought the... Okay. I thought <laughs> Marlon Brando was only going to star Napoleon in the the Kubrick one. That no, that never... was Jack Nicholson. Okay, Nicholson. Yeah. Where did Napoleon? Desiree. Apparently, it's mm. a big period romance uh, about Napoleon. Ooh. Can't say I've Boo world. <laughs> For being so you know, confusing. It's, it's, it's interesting. With uh, some of these, it, it actually took a surprising amount of research to figure out whether they were playing the character or playing somebody playing the character or playing somebody sort of vaguely inspired by the character. Mm. And some of them I may have gotten wrong. So <laughs> I take no responsibility for that. I'm just charging forward to number seven. Frank Sinatra, Carrie Elways, John Cleese, Sean Connery, Kevin Costner. Robin Hood? Yep. Yeah. One for Genevieve. All right, now I can sit back. <laughs> no, no, we've got we've got some com coming up for you. I always pitch some at the people who complain that they're most likely to lose. Let's see what we can do. Number eight: Theta Barra, Claudette Colbert, Sophia Loren, Vivian Leigh, and Elizabeth Taylor. 
Genevieve. Cleopatra? Yes. Well done. Yay. This is a good game. We've got uh, Nathan yes. at three, Keith at two, Genevieve at two, and nobody's missed one yet. All right, number nine, Adriana Casaletti, Amy Poehler, Irene Cara, Lily Collins, and Kristen Stewart. Oh. Genevieve. Oh, shoot. Scott Tobias feels going to bite me. It's not what I thought. Snow White? Yeah. Snow White is correct, although uh, I would have liked Impressive. to have hear, heard Genevieve's answer. I guess technically she can't lose a point if she didn't give an incorrect answer. Mm-hmm. My finger slipped. <laughs> You're standing by that one, are you? All right, number 10. Thelma Todd, Ava Gardner, Ursula Andras, Britt Eklund. Aphrodite? Yes, uh, I would have also accepted Venus. They kind of go back and forth. That might be considered slightly cheaty, but basically the same character. Uh, the last one was going to be Vanna White. Yes. Ooh. Number 11. <laughs> this, this may be Nathan's to walk away with. No, UV Bowl. <laughs> Michael Moriarty. Nikki Cat, Alex Guinness. And Bruno Ganz. Keith? Hitler. Hitler it is. <laughs> All right, we've got Keith at five, uh, Nathan at three, and Genevieve at two. Number 12. Lyle Talbot. Anthony LaPaglia. James Marsters. Kevin Spacey. And Gene Hackman. Nathan? That would be uh, Lex Luthor. Well done. All right. Number 13. Marcus Call Franklin, Richard Gere, Ben Wishaw, Kate Blanchett, Christian Bale. Genevieve? Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob Dylan. Uh, what's, uh, what, what's the uh, trick question there? Do you the, know? It's all in the same movie. It's all in the same film. Yeah. All right. This, uh, this one's still winnable. Uh, we've got Keith at five, Nathan at four, Genevieve at three, uh, with just a couple left to go. So let's see. Number 14. Jeffrey Bailden, Alec McCohen, Ben Wishaw, John Cleese. Q. Q is correct. And now it is no longer winnable by anybody but Keith. But I'm going to give you the last question anyway because I really like this one. Number 15, Pat O'Brien, Kathleen Turner, Jack Lemmon, Rosalind Russell. (laughs) I can see the light behind Nathan's eyes. One of the characters from the front page. Yes. Originally, that was then remade over and over and over again to His Girl Fridays, switching channels, totally blinking on what the actual characters. I, I feel like you should get like a Hildy point for Johnson? every moment, every minute no. that you can like maintain information <laughs> about this. It's not uh, Hildy Johnson, is it? Yes, it is Hildy Johnson. Yeah. Oh, oh there we go. That was my first guess, so that qualifies. All right. You know, there are a, a surprising number of areas in which uh, you can generate these characters that have been played over and over and over, like comic books and mythology and history. And most of them are kind of short on women. Just so you know. It's, I really want to do Lady Macbeth, and I could not find a single iconic Lady Macbeth out there. What about Juliet? Uh, Juliet was on the list. There's a, there's a bunch more. We could perhaps do this again. This was uh, like one of the better ones in terms of uh, evenness. We ended up with uh, Keith at six, Nathan at five, and Genevieve at three. Which is three more than you yeah, thought you were yeah, going to get. perfectly respectable. I will, I will happily take my bronze medal. All right, guys. Thanks totally a lot for playing. Only five losing to Keith over and over again. <laughs> Once again, we're concluding with the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell. People recommending things they love tend to ramble about why those things are great, so here's where we teach people to cut to the chase and compete for our attention as concisely as possible. Two dissolvers have exactly 30 seconds each to sell the host on a movie or something related to cinema, a book, a soundtrack, an idea, or whatever they want. It's a competition, and the host, that's me, gets to pick the winner. All right, Matt Singer, what do you have for me in 30 seconds or less? 
I wanted to recommend a movie that I just saw at Fantastic Fest, which is called Man of Tai Chi. It is available now on uh, VOD, and it's the directorial debut of Keanu Reeves, and he does a pretty good job of making a, a martial arts movie. The guy has some experience in the genre, and it shows. He brought in some of the uh, the guys from The Matrix to make it with him, and and it's a fun martial arts movie nothing too fancy but the guy understands what we're there to see and it has some really fun keanu moments including the line you owe me a life all right scott tobias let's hear you match that 30 seconds or less go okay i'm gonna recommend amityville 2 the possession uh this may be surprising because i just gave two stars to that movie in a, in a uh, review of the amityville horror uh, trilogy, but uh, this movie, I, I think, I want to blow a dog whistle to fans of '80s horror because this is a movie that has it has got it's got Burt Young who plays it was Polly and, and Rocky. He's in it as an abusive uh, uh, dad. It's got it's got a weird incest subplot and it's got unbelievable style. This film is completely bananas, and I think it's a wonderful window into a particular period in, in uh, American horror filmmaking. Oh wow, uh, perfect thirty seconds for Scott Tobias. Ooh. Well, Scott, you win on energy and you win on style. You 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 win on speed and you win on timing but matt wins on recommending something i'm ever actually likely to voluntarily watch uh and he wins on keanu reeves quotes which as we all know gets people a lot of bonus points in this game at least when i'm hosting so i'm going to uh go with matt singer's recommendation on that one uh mostly because uh, how could you not watch man of tai chi and then turn around and watch 47 ronin and (laughs) see how keanu reeves does martial arts on two different as opposed to watching an amityville horror movie which you know as as you yourself know is just a terrible terrible it's got a creepy incest subplot. Come on, people. Oh, yeah, you're no, just the right winning choice, me over the right, right now. You'll, th- I, you'll I, I, thank me later when you owe me a life becomes a huge <laughs> internet meme. Trust me, it's going to happen. You owe me a life or creepy incestuous subplot going with you owe me a life. Thanks a lot, guys. That does it for episode six of the Dissolve podcast. Tune in in two weeks for episode seven. In the meantime, you can experience the Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, as well as in website form at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you want to tell Matt Singer he owes you a life or pay back the one you owe him, he's Matt Singer on Twitter. Thanks for listening.